Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has 10 years of law enforcement analysis experience, all as an intel analyst with the Washington State Fusion Center. Before this, she spent five years as a CIA officer, two years as a private investigator, and three years doing defense contract intel. She currently works as a cyber threat analyst for a major retail store, and she regularly publishes to open source newsletter. Finding information is her passion. Please welcome Jan Mondale. Jan, how are we doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you, Jason. All right. It is a pleasure to have you on the podcast here. There's a lot to go over. You have quite a uh, resume here to, to look at. So kudos to you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. How did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? Well, I spent a period of time, about three years, as I owned my own private investigation agency. Mm-hmm. But I had kept in contact with people I worked with when I worked for the defense contractor as an information scientist. And um, one of them put me in contact with somebody on LinkedIn who asked if I was would be interested in working as an intelligence analyst for the, for the Fusion Center. And I said, sure, regular paycheck, that would be nice. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and not working divorce cases and things like that sounded really good, too. <laughs> so I applied for the job, and I was very surprised that I got it. And because I had no law law enforcement background at all. And, and I got hired and walked in the first day, they handed me a bunch of really hard tasks. And I just started looking on the internet and found answers to questions. And that's what (laughs) I did for 10 years before I decided to go out and branch into cyber threats analysis. And now I do that for a large international retailer. I always like to look at the bookends of folks analyst career, what they did before and after being an analyst. So I want to go back a little bit farther, though. One of the things I didn't mention in your intro was you spent 20 years in the Air Force before your five years with as a CIA officer. So what yes. did you do? Yes, what, I, did, what did you do for the Air Force? Well, I was an intelligence officer. My specialty or my AFSC for any of the people in the audience who know what that is, with signals intelligence. And that meant that I did SIGINT, which is essentially what the National Security Agency does. So I had assignments at the National Security Agency and at signals intelligence units in various parts of the world. And my last three years on active duty, I moved into what was then called information operations, which is essentially open source intelligence. I mean, how can you attack your adversary non-kinetically by finding out things about their infrastructure and can we take out the traffic lights in a city and and cause non-kinetic damage to an adversary in in a war situation for example Mm -hmm. i mean so it was called information operations and that's where i discovered open source intelligence and that's when i was also getting a master's degree in library science because I knew when I retired that I'd have to get a job since I was only 43 when I retired. <laughs> and and so I, I wanted to become a librarian. And because of my background in, in intelligence and in open source intelligence, I was recruited right out of library science school by the CIA. So that's how I ended up at CIA. It's, I wasn't recruit. It helped that I already knew about intelligence and understood the process and everything. But I was actually hired because I was a library science student, not because I was an Air Force intelligence officer. Hmm. So that's that's primarily what I did at CIA. I did various types of high-level information science and library science, worked on the information architecture for the intelligence communities, library, library consortium, and things like that. And I and I briefly, well, for three years I ran the National Reconnaissance Office Library and for a brief period of time, I was worked in the headquarters library, basically okay. ordering books and things, basically. But I, I never actually have worked in a library. So when you think of a library, it's you know, like your public library that you walk in and 
and check out books. I've I've never worked in that kind of library. But you worked in the CIA library. So library and librarian yes. isn't code word for something. No, no. <laughs> although although we did, it wasn't like three days of the Condor, but we did support the mission by we had like. Librarians are basically intel officers, and we supported the operations side of things by having deployed librarians in the field. Mm -hmm. There used to be a poster that that we had on our wall that said, "Never underestimate the value of a librarian." Nice. So nice. So, is most of what you did with the Air Force and then even into the CIA is is most of that stuff that you can't talk about, or is there stories that you can share during your time? With these agencies? Well, the, most of it I can't talk about, but there is one thing that I know is unclassified. One of my crowning glories, in my opinion, was when I worked in information operations and we used to read like gray literature, things like mm -hmm. agricultural reports and things like that. That's mm -hmm. considered open source intelligence, but it's not easy to obtain. But if mm -hmm. you obtain it, it's not classified. Anyway, so we. I was reading a gray literature report about the Pakistani government ordering a whole bunch of beer fermenters from this company in Germany. <laughs> and and the reason that piqued my interest is that, I, and this falls into just understanding culture and everything from reading a lot. I knew that Pakistan is a primarily Muslim country and they probably don't drink a lot of beer there. Not enough to justify the government buying all these beer fermenters. So I started doing research and I found a National Institute of Standards and Technology report about how beer fermenters can be used to make mustard gas. Mm. So so that's an example of all of that was open source. I mean, mm -hmm. I didn't find anything secret in any of my research. The agricultural report wasn't secret and neither was the NIST report. But mm -hmm. you put those two pieces of in information together, those two pieces of open source information together, and you have intel. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's an example of how anybody can be an intel analyst if if they have an inquiring mind and like to put things together, two pieces of information put together becomes a whole different, whole different story. Mm -hmm. How much, how much comprehension were you doing? And what I mean by that is just consuming written word throughout your days as you were doing that. Cause it, it seems to me that you were a student of whatever you were studying and you were consuming as much as possible. And then when little anomalies or points of interest would come up, such as the beer mm -hmm. situation there, you were able to use some critical thinking to identify a, a potential threat? Oh, gosh, my whole life, I, I've been a reader. And so that's why I wanted to become an intelligence officer is because I knew we got to read lots of information. Signals intelligence, you don't really, I mean, I was a manager when I was a signals intelligence officer because I don't know how to do what they did as mm -hmm. far as collecting the information. But, but yeah, my whole life is reading. I, that's what I do now. I have to read all of these articles and news articles and cyber threat alerts from CISA and and I have to try and put those all of the that data together to make a comprehensive picture to give to my corporation so that we don't get hacked. I spend oh gosh, I probably spend the vast majority of my waking hours I spend reading. Hmm. Yeah. That's a, I always it's funny as I've been doing this podcast gig, there's certain things that I've identified that I was an analyst for a law enforcement analyst for 10 years, but there's certain deficiencies that I have that I know that makes a good analyst that I just never have. I'm, I've never been a fan of reading. I was in remedial reading most of my childhood. I don't find pleasure in reading. But I can understand why it was a deficiency for me as a, as an analyst not to be just to like to read and just can keep on consuming information via the written word. Well, I like to I like to consume it. I hate to write about it. I, I had one high, <laughs> I had I had one high school teacher who chided me. Jan, I know you read the book. I saw you reading the book. Why won't you turn in the book report? And I go because I hate writing book reports. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I'm not much of a writer either. Hence, hence the podcast, because this is my way of writing a novel without actually writing, right? And uh, mm-hmm. interviewing all these folks and getting all these different perspectives. And I would think too. You talked about finding information is your passion as you went into the defense contract work and even the private investigation that you, that you held before an analyst. Imagining it was similar skills, you're reading information, you're using critical thinking to help the clients. Right. Sometimes you can only infer facts from what mm-hmm. you read. For example, I had one case when I was a private investigator where they wanted me to confirm that an elderly woman was related to them. And Hmm. it used to be that newspapers put everything in the newspaper to include marriages and when you moved from one state to another, when you took (laughs) the ferry to Alaska, (laughs) everything. And, And then who worked for what company when in a fishing village in Alaska and things like that. Anyway, fortunately, a lot of that had been digitized, or at this case would not have been possible. But I found old newspaper articles that had the marriage of this woman to this man during World War II in Prosser, Washington. And and then I found another newspaper article that mentioned that they had moved to Ketchikan and were working in a cannery there. And that newspaper article led me to find birth announcements for their children I was able to build basically a genealogy showing that, yes, this elderly woman was more than likely related. I never like Intel people hate to say, yes, this is a fact, more than likely (laughs) related to to my client. So but that it it required a lot of reading and a lot of digging. And it's a crying shame that newspapers no longer do that. Um, in, In fact, most cases, newspapers barely even report the news. So, and they, and as far as a hard copy, in this case, I was looking at digitized copies of Prosser newspapers and Ketchikan, Alaska newspapers and things like that. They were digitized hard of digitizations of hard copies. Those hard copies no longer are printed. Um, Issaquah, near where I live in Washington, used to have a really good newspaper that had been in, in publication for over a hundred years. And they just went out of business about five years ago. So now anything that you want to find out about Isquah, you pretty much have to find out by word of mouth or through this this online social media thing called Nextdoor. It's it's impossible to find out what's going on in your own town nowadays because newspapers have died. And so everything that an Intel person does involves searching for for truth and hoping that that you can come up with a fact that will satisfy your client or your customer or whoever, that you you should always try to get as close to fact as you can. Hmm. Like I said, Intel people, in my experience, rarely, rarely will say something is a fact. They'll say it's more than likely that this is true. (laughs) Yeah. Now, interesting, when you're looking at the digitized version of the newspaper for your story there, are you actually going to the library and that's where you found it or was it a website that you were on that you were going through there's a a website called i think it's just called newspapers.com anyway you pay for it it's part of Mm ancestry.com and and you you pay for access but it's basically microfiche on that has been put online so sometimes it's a little bit hard to read Uh, you can read census reports that way too in fact i think i use census reports since this had happened prior to 1930. So I was able to use census reports also, which are also, you can look at them online. It's basically a, a picture of a microfiche, but you have to, I mean, gene, genealogists know how to do all of this stuff really well. I was just doing it because that's what this particular client wanted. But yeah, history is a wonderful thing. And <laughs> internet internet archive is another really really great source they have digitized a ton of newspapers and journals and articles from going back into the 1800s that are available on the internet archive which is free good 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 all right so let's get into your time with the fusion center then because as you mentioned you, you you take this job and you interview this job for this job and you were a little surprised that you got the job so 
when you're walking in for the first time. This is uh, while you're used to government agencies with the Air Force and CIA. This is the first time right. walking into a law enforcement entity. So just kind of take us back to those first couple of days, starting with the Fusion Center. Okay. Well, the Fusion Center in Washington State is primarily made up of analysts who are contractors. We are contracted to the Washington State Patrol. And the Washington State Patrol provides the director and um, detectives and kind of oversight of the contracted analysts who work there. And then other agencies are part of the Fusion Center also. The TSA has representation within the Fusion Center. FBI has representation. Department of Drug Enforcement has, I mean, it's it's a multi-agency thing. That's why it's called a Fusion Center. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I walked in and to me, because I was working with those other national level government agencies, it didn't seem that different from regular intel. However, criminals are different from terrorists. I mean, mm-hmm. I'd rather, de- I'd ac- actually rather deal with a terrorist because they're slightly more predictable, but <laughs> criminals are very unpredictable and, and you never know what their, normally their motivation is, is financial gain, but sometimes it's not. Mm-hmm. And I, I just walked in with my intel hat on and mm-hmm. and I looked at everything that was thrown at me as an intelligence problem. So fortunately, uh, they only briefly played around with having me be a crime analyst <laughs> <laughs> because I was terrible at that. Mm-hmm. I'm not good at, at analyzing trends and making graphs and things like that. I, mm-hmm. I so admire crime analysts who can do that because it's just not my skill level, mm-hmm. skill set at all. But but one of the first things that I was asked, and it was almost tongue in cheek, it says State Patrol Sergeant had a friend who was a principal at a, at a high school in the local area. And this high school principal had shown his friend a photo of graffiti on a rock. And this rock sits outside this high school and it's kind of like a mascot kind of a rock. I mean, it's it's part of the landscape of the high school. And, and this thing had been defaced with this ugly graffiti. And it was in a what looked like a foreign language. And so the friend showed it to his, his sergeant friend who showed it to me, wondering what this possibly said on this rock. And I looked at it and I'm a geek, I'll admit it. I mean, Star Wars, Star Trek, just about every kind of science fiction thing you can imagine, um, mm-hmm. Harry Potter, all of that. I love that stuff. So I looked at this and I thought, well, it kind of looks like Klingon, but <laughs> I don't. I don't speak Klingon, but there's there's this online dictionary that is one of the most, it's called Omniglot, O-M-N-I-G-L-O-T. I don't remember if it's .com or .org. Anyway, it's a website that has all of these languages on it, like Assyrian and Akkadian and dead languages, fake languages, made up languages. And so I went on there and the, the format, again, I read a lot, looked like one letter was repeated. And normally, if a letter is repeated, it's a vowel, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and the most common vowel is an E. So it looked like I, I could make out what, what, what the E probably was based on how this was written. It was three, three words. And so I start looking through this Omniglot webpage and I, and I found it. I just couldn't believe it that I found it. It was some language called Reformed Galactic something or other. This was almost 10 years ago. So I'm not sure exactly what the name of the language was, but it was a language that was created for a video game. And so wow. that with, within this video game creator, and I don't remember the name of the game, was so persnickety that he actually mm-hmm. created his own language, kind of the way J.R.R. Tolkien created Elvish. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's a complete language with grammar and everything. Well, this video game creator had done the same thing, not quite as detailed as that. So So I was able to translate this phrase and and it wasn't very very flattering yeah there was an f-bomb in there and so i don't know if the principal ever did anything with it but my recommendation to the sergeant was let him know that it's from this game and maybe if he really wants to find out who did the graffiti find out what high school kids play this game Mm because i mean they're the only ones who would know this language (laughs) nobody else knows it so so that's that's how I got started. I mean, that's just basic intel. Yes, it was uh-huh. a crime. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, the last few years that I was um, 
in the Fusion Center the last five years. In fact, I was a, a human trafficking analyst and I assisted various um, agencies around the Washington state with tracking down human traffickers. And that is something I never, ever, ever, ever want to do again. It was, it was an awful experience. And I so admire the people who are able to do that. But I think it probably gets to everybody eventually because I don't know very many people who stay in that business for very long. Yeah. Anyway. But, but you have a particular yeah. case you want to talk about in terms of. Oh, yeah. Of, well, it's not really of, human trafficking, but mm-hmm. I can talk about it because it's totally unclassified and doesn't mention any people who are up being uh, being prosecuted right now or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But again, this was actually before I became a human trafficking analyst. But again, I get this call like. We, we have this, this person who we think is from Washington State based on the IP address, which, by the way, never trust IP address locations, but <laughs> based on the IP address, Interpol had contacted Washington State Patrol and the Fusion Center to try and find out who a person was who had asked an eight-year-old girl via the social media platform called Kik, K-I-K, for nude photos. And the little girl lived in England. And and so that's why Interpol asked us. And for some reason, like like I said, the IP address indicated to them that this person was located in Washington state. And that tr- turned out not to be the case. But the mom of the little girl had really thoughtfully, maybe she was an, uh, a geek like me, um, written down the username of the person on the Kick account. And so we had an IP address and a username and and a, and a photo that she had screenshot of his profile photo on the kick account. So I, I kind of at least knew what he, what he looked like. And so I just started doing the username searches and he had, by the time we got the case, he had closed down his kick account. So I had to look other places, but his, he had a very unusual username or at least distinctive, not unusual, but distinctive. And so I found his Instagram page because he used the same username in more than one place, which is a, a typical thing to always look for the username because many, many, many people use their usernames in more than one place. So it's I found branding, his Instagram. It's branding, right? You're branding yeah. with the same the same brand throughout all these different platforms. So that makes sense. Right. So anyway, his profile photo on his Instagram page matched the profile photo on the kick page that the mother had taken a screenshot of. So I, I was pretty sure I had the right guy. And so I go down looking through his Instagram photos and there's a photo in there of a little boy and in pajamas, di- dinosaur pajamas. And and a, a woman had liked the photo, you know, put a heart on it. Mm-hmm. And so I looked at her and just to see if there was a relationship between the two people because she had a real name on there, not, not a username. She had a real name. Mm-hmm. And so I looked at her and I looked down through all of her photos and found the same little boy with the same not the exact same photo, but wearing the same pajamas and was definitely the same little boy. Mm -hmm. So I kind of figured that these two people were probably related in some way. Mm -hmm. And so I found her because she used her real name. She was pretty easy to find. And I found her Facebook page and she had over 400, thank goodness, only 400, but around Mm -hmm. 400 friends on Facebook. And I just started going down through all the pictures of her friends until I found him. Mm -hmm. And he was using a version of his username. It was different, but it was still not his real name. It was still, mm-hmm. but I could tell not only because he looked the same on his Facebook page, which was all of this, by the way, was public Intel analysts, crime analysts, any kind of Intel analyst, unless they work for a government agency where they have a, a security clearance can only look at public Facebook pages or mm-hmm. public Instagram pages. If it had been private, I would not have been able to de- decide, discern all of this stuff. So anyway, I find his Facebook page based on her Facebook page based on his Instagram page based on, yeah, anyway, so it all goes back. So I'm going down through his Facebook page and looking at all of his friends and acquaintances who have posted on his page. And I find a gentleman who had posted on his Facebook page that this gentleman with the unusual username was his son. And that person's Facebook page, he was an elderly person and he used his real name. So now I had a probable last name. Mm -hmm. And so I just went back and started trying to connect that username and variations of it to that last name. And I found an old photo bucket account. People don't realize that those don't go away. And 
I mean, people don't much use photo bucket anymore, but <laughs> he had an old photo bucket account that had been inactive for a long time, but he had connected his real name, first and last name with his username. And it was mm -hmm. definitely the same person. And so I was, he doesn't live in, didn't live in Washington state. He lived in New Jersey. And I passed all of that information back to Interpol. And one of the frustrations for analysts, huge frustration is not just me, is we pass the information on to the operators, in this case, Interpol, and we never hear, ever, very rarely do we ever hear whether or not anything came out of the, in this case, three days of work that I put into finding that, that person. So for all I know, he's still out there wandering around asking eight-year-olds for nude photos. But, but I found him, I know with a pretty much 99% certainty that I found the person who asked that eight-year-old for nude photos. And, and I'm putting this out there for all of your audience people. It, try to get your people, the people, the officers, the law enforcement people that you work with to give you some feedback every now and then on whether or not what you found for them was useful or not. Because usually, in my experience at least, it goes off into the Ethernet and we never hear whether or not what we found was useful or not. Yeah, that or it's is, not a trip. Yeah, that is it's frustrating. Not a, I, I, yeah, it's just, not attributed. I mean, the, when I would find human traffickers and turn them over to law enforcement with all the information, the only way I would find out that they that anything had happened to them was checking newspaper articles to see if they whether they got convicted or not. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, so yeah. So how how did human trafficking cases get to you at the Fusion Center? Well, Washington State is very well. Everybody should be, but Washington State is very anti-human trafficking. Mm -hmm. And the attorney general's office determined that they would like to have an analyst in the fusion center who could cover the entire state because mm -hmm. not all not all local law enforcement agencies have the money or the resources for their own intel analysts. And human trafficking happens everywhere in a state like Washington, where we have agriculture as well as, as the sex trade. You have labor trafficking. We have a, a proliferation of massage parlors, and part of that's because we're on what we call the I-5 corridor, where it's people moving between cities, not only clients of massage parlors, but the, the workers in the massage parlors who are normally being trafficked. Are, it's easy to move them back and forth up and down the I-5 corridor, which is the interstate that we have running between Southern California and the, the border with Mexico, basically, and the border of Mexico. With Canada is the interstate that runs up and down the West Coast, and it's called the I-5 corridor, and drugs move up and down it, and so do human trafficking victims. And so Washington State is a focal point for that kind of activity, unfortunately. And so the my my goal, and, and I think the, the Attorney General's goal, was to have somebody who could assist smaller agencies with human trafficking cases as far, from an intelligence point of view, as far as finding, digging up information, for example, on massage, massage parlors, who's the owner? We decided to try and go after them on a regulatory basis. Like you, in Washington state, you have to have a license to be a massage therapist. You have to have continuing education. That all has to be documented. When you go into a massage parlor as law enforcement, you can ask for the license. If they don't have a license or not all of the people who work in there can show that they have licenses, then you can at least regulatorily shut them down. It's very, very hard in, in cases where the victims don't even usually identify as being human trafficking victims, much less speak English well enough to tell you whether or not they think that they're human trafficking victims. It's very hard to shut them down from a human trafficking perspective, but it's easy to shut them down from a regulatory perspective because it's not easy to getting a massage license in Washington state. And so that's, that's the kind of thing that I would assist with. I also assisted with um, net nanny operations by trying to identify people who, who were coming into, and these were sting operations, so the children weren't real, but in the minds of the men who were coming in to have sex with them, the children were real. Try to identify them before they showed up at the door to see if they had, you know, weapons licenses or, or things like that, or, or family members with children who we needed to go out and rescue after we arrested the, the, um, the person coming to have sex, because we don't want them going back to their families if they have children and, and, and abusing their children. Anyway, it's, so I did a lot of that kind of thing. 
but always with with direction from a prosecutor or mm -hmm. a detective or I never just went out and and tried to find human trafficking people mm -hmm. on my own. It was always somebody said, hey, I need help with this. Can you help identify this person? Can you tell me more about them? Do, what kind of family do they have? Where what other properties may they own? Things like that. Um, pimps. It's it's so easy for pimps to get an address to give to put on their driver's license. So when they get pulled over for speeding and and the officer who pulls them over has suspicions that there may be trafficking victims in the car, but they that isn't the reason they pulled them over. So they can't do anything about it. They mm -hmm. do a, a report that goes to the state patrol. And if there's indications of human trafficking on that report, that report came to me and I would mm -hmm. try to find out as much as I could about the driver of the vehicle, who is usually the pimp, and then if by chance any other people in the car were identified during that traffic stop, try to find out more about them too. And mm -hmm. so those were the kinds of things I did. It was still basically intel work. It's just the the level of depravity that I had to look at was really hard for a, mm -hmm. a non-law enforcement trained person without the resources that law enforcement have as far as counseling sessions and things like that was really hard. And five years was as much as I could take of it. I do I do know, <laughs> I don't know if they, they may have hired somebody, but because the job announcement closed last month, but I do know they're trying to replace my position in the, in the fusion center. If anybody wants to go be a human trafficking analyst <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> after, yeah. after I've told you how horrible it is. <laughs> Hi there, I'm Amanda Bruner, president of the Carolinas Crime Analysis Association, and I'm thrilled to invite you to our upcoming training conference in the historically rich city of Charleston, South Carolina. Join us from February 27th through March 1st for an immersive experience aimed at honing the skills of crime and intelligence analysts in both the public and private sectors. With over 125 attendees expected, it's a prime opportunity to learn and network with other professionals. We are proud to announce that Dr. Rachel Santos, author of Crime Analysis with Crime Mapping, will be our keynote speaker. Plus, don't miss masterclasses hosted by renowned experts like Dr. Eric Pisa, Charlie Giberti, and NW3C. But that's not all. We have a student poster session, proctored IACA exams, and more. And guess what? Your registration includes two full conference days plus the masterclasses. And it's not just about learning. It's about creating lasting memories. So enjoy lunch on us, Indulge at our ice cream social and join in our networking events, including ghost tours. Registration is a steal at $225 for members and $275 for non-members. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity. Join us for a conference that combines professional development with a touch of Southern charm. I look forward to seeing y'all in Charleston. Register today at carolinascrimeanalysis.org. That's carolinascrimeanalysis.org. Hey, I'm Neil Hubbard. Keep your computer desktops clean. My goodness, get a solid file naming nomenclature. November 30 data.csv is just not it. Figure out your nomenclature, clean up your desktops. Well, it's an important job. Someone's got to do it, right? Especially, I, I think, uh, with what you said with smaller jurisdictions. If you mm -hmm. think about police officers in a smaller jurisdiction, they're they're really good at what's in front of them in terms of their jurisdiction. But when you have a crime such as human trafficking that goes well beyond the boundaries of the police department's jurisdiction, it, it does mm -hmm. get difficult for these smaller jurisdictions to do. Not only are you talking about the state of Washington, the United States, but you all are so close to Canada there that it's, mm -hmm. it becomes international pretty quick. And, yes. and so the, the more they, they'll easily take as much help as you're willing to give them. Yes, exactly. That's why that's why it was decided to centralize it in the fusion center, since we deal with the entire state and we work with other state fusion centers in Idaho and California and Oregon, for example. And mm -hmm. one of my cases even bled over into Georgia. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's 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 really important, if, if possible, that they they replace me, I think, anyway, just to just to continue that that legacy of helping out prosecutors and detectives. Yeah. Now, 
In terms of those that are being trafficked, sometimes the people have a certain profile of who who that is. Did you have a certain pattern that you saw there in Washington, or there was a whole variety of folks that were being trafficked? Well, it is a whole variety. A lot of people think that human trafficking is international. People are brought in from Korea or Romania or someplace like that and trafficked. That's what the television makes it look like. But that's not the case. Human trafficking in in the United States is, is a domestic problem. It's, it starts, most sex trafficking victims are recruited, start, the average age of recruitment for a sex trafficking victim is 14. And of course, that's an average. That means a lot of them are younger. Mm-hmm. And so when you see an adult sex trafficking victim and you think that they're doing it by choice, they aren't. Nobody chose to be trafficked when they were 12 years old. And they once they're in that life, it's very, very, very hard for them to get out. And uh, it, people have a bias. They think they they see somebody like a white, promiscuously dressed woman who they think is doing it by choice. That mm-hmm. is not the reality. Yes, a lot of them are white, but the vast majority are minorities. Minorities are trafficked more more heavily because they're easy victims. Nobody sees them. I mean, if, if you see a, a man going up to a, a white girl on the street and and obviously propositioning her, you might do something about it. But if you see, because you have blinders, people have blinders. If you see that same man going up to a, a colored person and propositioning them, you might be as not might not be as quick to react to that. Or you might think, I this is a true story. I like to take trains, and I was taking the train back from a conference back east right before COVID, and on trains. They have dining cars. And so I was in the dining car and you share tables. It's like you end up at the table with whoever is already at that table. There are four person tables in a dining car. And unless your party's four people, you're going to be at, at a table with strangers. And so I'm at a table with a couple of really nice guys and a, and a, and a woman who was dressed very promiscuously and was mm-hmm. obviously high. And but just the sweetest person. I mean, <laughs> we got to talk to her and because of my human trafficking training, my antenna went up and and I, I got her off to the side and she never actually came out and said, yes, I have a pimp. But she did say that her boyfriend was making her go. I was on the train from Chicago to Minneapolis, was making her go to Minneapolis to meet somebody to have sex with him. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, that's pretty much a pimp right there, whether yeah. she called him her boyfriend or not. Mm-hmm. And the way he was forcing her to do this, by the way, human trafficking Fraud, force, or coercion is all it has to take. It doesn't have to be beating or anything like that to make to make you do it. In this case, he was holding her infant son hostage, basically. Oh. And I went to the train people because I work with TSA and Amtrak and and all of these government agencies who are supposed to be trained in human trafficking, but apparently this Amtrak crew did not get the message. And I said, I, I think this is a human trafficking victim. We need to do something. And and they're like, oh, no, she's just a druggie. She's just a drug addict. That's what they saw. I see human trafficking victim. They see drug addict. And they aren't going to do anything. And I said, well, have you had human trafficking training? Because I'd been assured before by an Amtrak friend of mine that, yes, Amtrak crews are trained. In this case, like I said, this crew didn't get the message or they just didn't want to do anything about it. So this poor woman got off the train in the middle of February in Minneapolis going to whatever unknown destiny. I mean, she'd been doing it for years. It was obvious, but but still, I mean, I feel I, I called the National Human Trafficking Hotline with the information that I was able to get from her. But again, this goes along with you never find out when you tell somebody something, whether or not it did any good or not, because nobody ever calls you back and says, hey, that tip you gave us was really helpful. So for all I know, she's still out there. If she's still alive, she looked in pretty bad shape. Mm -hmm. She was probably in her late 20s, but she looked 50. She had a very rough life. So people just don't see it. They think it's somewhere else. Well, it's not somewhere else. It could be sitting at the same dining room table as you're sitting at. I had a, a, a school administrator once tell me to my face that they didn't have human trafficking in his school. And I, I'm like, okay. 
<laughs> well, lo and behold, about it wasn't his particular school, but about a year later, I had a major case come my way where I had to track track down, help track down a man who was recruiting 12-year-olds out of the same school district. So that's why I know it was at least close to his home, out of the same school district, middle school in the same school district, and doing, I, I can't even, like, I have nightmares from what mm-hmm. this man did to, to the children that he recruited. And and thank goodness the police department for the town that the school was in found out about it. And and it was just after that, it was just a manhunt through various non-open source resources. I was able, the FBI was working right along with me, by the way, I was not doing this by myself. Um, we were able to track this man down. He fled the country to Malaysia and we were able to find him there. And and he was extradited back to the States and he got 60 years. So good. Good deal. But it's it's out there. It's right in front of you. It isn't some foreigner from Romania. It's a little girl from the middle school down the street. Yeah. So or a little boy, because it can be boys too. Hmm. Wow. All right. Well, I can I can obviously see why that weighed on you after five years of doing that, and then you wanted to switch gears. So I guess let's nice segue into that. So you you leave the fusion center and you go do cyber threat analysis for a retailer now that's what you're doing and i find it interesting what you put on your resume you put daily battles in the cyber warfare world that's right (laughs) we're at war folks i mean i i just fortunately cyber threat actors are invisible for the most part so i don't have to see their faces (laughs) and they aren't prostituting out 12 year old girls so (laughs) (laughs) i mean worst comes to worst you, your company might suffer a financial loss. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I know that that's still a very bad thing. And, and I totally agree that that's a bad thing. But, but it's, it's just constant. I mean, it's relentless. They, a number of people out there trying to break into your system, whether it's a corporate system or your own personal computer, it, it's, it's just grown so much. Mm-hmm. I just this morning was reading a Microsoft report that said attacks against brute force attacks for to, to get, find out a password have, mm-hmm. has grown for three times in the past 12 months to where now there are 4,000 attempts a second. Yeah, it's in the millions of a day. An yeah. average company is going to have a million attempts, attacks, if you will, on their system in a given day. Yes, yes. It's And like I said, it's relentless. And it's not just corporations, it's schools and hospitals and Mm -hmm. water utility companies. And I mean, it's just everything, every bit of our Mm -hmm. society that touches the internet is under attack. Mm -hmm. So it's fascinating. I will never get bored. (laughs) (laughs) And I will, I will never not be busy. There's only four analysts in my team. And, and it's just morning to night. And we're just hoping they don't make us go to 24 hours. It is a serious war. Yeah. Now, is going back to your hat of uh, reading and comprehending, is that a big part of what you're doing? Is there a lot being written about what you're analyzing? Well, there are a lot of people out there in this battle. And Mm -hmm. some of them, like CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. I know it's why they yeah. have security in there twice, but they do mm-hmm. um, because they they look at cybersecurity as one word. That's why. Um, anyway, CISA is a major government agency that fights cybercrime and 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 assists society with that fight. But they put out reports every day. They put out alerts every time a, a cyber threat actor, for example, Russia's a big source of cyber threat actors or hackers or criminal cyber criminals. They put out alerts. And what we look for are their, it's same as in, in real warfare. We look at their tactics, techniques, and procedures. And we try to, a lot of these times, a lot of times they're faceless people that don't even have a real name. Like a lot of hacker groups like Black Kitty or something. That's not one, but I can't think of one right off the top of my head. But a lot of them have very colorful names. And, but a lot of them don't, they just go by numbers like TA 565 or something like that. And that's a number that we designate them with. And so, but they have different tactics, like, are they into phishing? Are they into smishing? 
which is a big deal these days. That's where you text somebody with something that you hope they click on and and then they can put malware on your phone or convince mm -hmm. you to give up information about yourself because, oh my God, my bank account's gonna get closed down if I don't give you my yeah. bank account and <laughs> yeah. password right now, that kind of thing. So some of them, that's one of their tactics. And once they get in your system, they have different ways. They may set up an account within your system that looks like somebody who should be in there. They Within 72 minutes, according to this Microsoft article I read this morning, they they can be into your private data once they get inside your system because they're just really good at moving around. I'm not a, a technical person, so I don't know how they do that exactly. I can mm. read the report and, and tell you that this is what the report says they do, but I can't tell you exactly how they do it. I don't know how to code. I don't I mean, I, I got as far as SQL and that's about it <laughs> as far as coding goes. But but so that's what we look for. We look for any kind of reports out there about a new threat actor or an emerging actor and what other people, because it's, it's a big community effort, what other people have gathered about what their tactics, techniques and procedures are so that our company can go in and harden our systems against that. So mm -hmm. we build we build defenses against what we think the enemy is going to do, just like an intel person. You you I, I had a boss once when I was in the Air Force who would pound it into our heads that he didn't want to know what they were doing. He wanted to know what they were going to do. Mm -hmm. And so that you can build the defenses against what you think they're going to do. Not what they're doing right now, right in front of you. They were up out, out there waving their arms and you know, <laughs> yelling and screaming. What are they doing? What what tactic could they be using that's going in and, and tunneling under your defenses? Mm -hmm. That's the kind of thing that a cyber threat intelligence person has to do is be able to forecast based on trends and analysis of what other threat actors have done, what they could do, and make sure that to the greatest extent that you can, that you've built up defenses against the the potentialities. Once it's a zero day, once they're already exploiting your system, you don't need a cyber threat analyst anymore. You need an incident response analyst who can mm -hmm. get in there and kick them out. The hand-to-hand -hand combat guys. We're the, <laughs> we're the guys who sit up in the ivory, ivory tower and say, watch out, watch <laughs> out. We're not the ones down there doing hand-to-hand -hand combat with these people, but we want to make sure the people who do are who are doing the hand-to-hand -hand combat have the tools they need to do that. So does that make sense? It does. It does. Very well put, actually. So that's that's interesting. So I'm going to move on now, actually, because there's a couple of things I want to talk about before we finish up this interview. You've taught open source from time to time. And mm -hmm. I like the description here is you have repeat customers on here because there's always something new that Jan teaches us. So I was just wondering maybe a, a couple of tips that you like to talk about when it comes to open source. Oh, sure. When I first started doing open source for the Fusion Center back in 2013, it was still a pretty new thing. I mean, people didn't even really know what that meant. So now so many people do it. I mean, just follow open source people on LinkedIn and you'll get so many tips. But my big thing is people need to understand that, number one, not everything is online. So if you can't find it, it might exist somewhere, but you might have to get your shoes on and go out in the rain and, and go to <laughs> a courthouse and dig up the records or whatever, because not everything is digitized. And a lot of people don't know that. So open source includes the non-digitized stuff too. So sometimes you have to go out and dig that down. But for the most part, open source intelligence in this day and age means things that you can find online. Mm -hmm. And use, use your search, they call them Google dorks. Use, use your search skills, think about what you wanna find and ask that question. Narrow it down depending on what you find. Like if I go to out there to search for Jan Mondale, I'm gonna find probably because the Google search algorithm, if I Google it, has gotten very sophisticated. At least the first 10 or 20 results will be me. But then after that, it starts going into Joan Mondale and Jane Mondale and, um, you know, all kinds of variations of that. Because once it exhausts everything it thinks it wants, you want, it, it'll start looking for other things. But the best way to narrow that down is to put um, quotation marks around my name. 
then you're only going to get, should only get Jan Mondale's. Um, you will probably get if further down, if you go down two or three pages, you might start getting into the Joan Mondale's and the Walter Mondale's and <laughs> all the other Mondale's out there. But but you'll you'll narrow, narrow your searches down. The, the point is, when I was a librarian, one of the, we used to have a contest. This was back when Google was in its infancy and the algorithm wasn't that great. But we'd have contests to see if we could narrow down a, a search result to one. How you, when you do when you do a Google search, you get millions of hits. Mm-hmm. Nobody goes. By the way, you know, Google kind of peters out after the fifth page. <laughs> They'll start just not even returning any more results. But they may say they've got millions of hits, but they don't. Mm-hmm. They won't show you that. Um, but but think about what you want. The, you you have a good idea what your answer is should look like. Ask that question. Don't don't deviate from that and and use as many search operators as you can. I call them search operators. They're Google dorks. So the quotation marks is the most basic one. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is to just search on one website. So to do that, say I just want to look at the Washington State Patrol to see if there are any Excel files um, listing who the people are. So you just do a site search. It's called uh, S I T E colon and then no space and wsp.gov.wa.gov. And then you put in a file type. So then you type in the file type, F-I-L-E-T-Y-P-E, colon, no space, no period, and put XSL or for, for an Excel spreadsheet. Say you mm-hmm. want, you're looking just for that. And you, that will narrow your search. You'll probably still get three or 400 results, and most of them won't be correct. But the first few should be links to Excel spreadsheets on the Washington State Patrol's official website showing what Excel spreadsheets, you you could probably extend it out by saying personnel or something like that, or mm-hmm. in URL personnel or something. But I mean, there's all of these tools out there that you can put right in your search box and, and narrow your search results down. So that's, that's my main thing is make it easy for yourself when you're doing OSINT. Basically, it's, it's just being really good at searching for things. That's OSINT. And to be make it easier, use these search operators or these Google dorks. And I don't know if you have like links that you include in your. I do. I normally put in links to in the show notes. So if somebody's oh, looking for more information. Well, I will forward you two little handy dandy cheat sheets I have with Google dorks on them. Nice. All right. And Excellent. and then that way you can attach them to the recording and people can just look at them there instead of me trying to explain them verbally. Yeah, yeah no, very good. We'll, we'll definitely do that. So the other thing you wanted to talk about is some advice on critical thinking. Yes. I have noticed in the last few years that people see something and because it's online or because it's on TV, they think it's true. And it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That's, I'm sorry, that's but that's your, that's the, your whole advice. I love it. Yeah, there there isn't a man in the moon, and the moon isn't made of blue cheese. And yes, we really did land people on the moon in 1969. And no, the the conspiracy theory that that's all made up and things like that. And and no, we don't have child sex trafficking in pizza parlors in Washington D.C. and I mean, all the things that people look at and think are true, think about it. Does that make logical sense? Just it, there's books and books about how to think critically. But the bottom line is use your common sense and think about what you're reading. Does it make sense? Have you ever known someone go to a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. to have sex with a child? Does it make sense? I mean, yeah. Anyway, uh, Critical thinking is a, is a big issue for me right now. In fact, I did write a whole newsletter article once about it. Just it's called logical. I wrote it because I didn't want to accuse people of being kind of not paying attention, but I, I called it logical fallacies because that's what they are. You think it makes sense, but it really doesn't. So you really need to think things through when you read them. And I read a lot and I have to watch my bias for thinking that because somebody wrote it down, it's true. I have to look at that sometimes and say, wait a minute, what else, what else is out there about this topic? And, and maybe do a little research before you take somebody's word for something, especially on social media where disinformation right now is a thing. The Chinese government, the North Korean government, and the Russian government 
uh, purposely put false information online for us to read so that we'll believe it and they can, it's, it's information operations, pure and simple. They're trying to affect how our society acts by putting fake information out there. And it's really important that we guard against that and our biases of believing what we read because it's online or because so-and-so said it. It doesn't necessarily mean that person really said it. Somebody could have put, put that false information out there. So I had, I had one case where we had somebody on a, on a watch list who was, we had information that this person was traveling to Washington state. And, and so I, I found the guy's fit. Facebook page and everything. And, and he posted on his Facebook page where he was, took a picture of him standing in front of a street sign on, and it was posted on a certain date at a certain time. And yeah, stupid me, very stupid me. I didn't think that he had left his state. So I told the FBI that I didn't think he was coming here because he was still in Encino, California, because I had a picture of him standing under a street sign to prove it on his Facebook page. That is the stupidest mistake ever. And it's so easy to fall into those kinds of traps. Of course, he took a picture and posted it online that day. That doesn't mean that's the day he took the picture. And yes, he was in Washington State. And stupid me thought he was still in California. So take everything you look at. It's not true just because they put it online. Corroborate, corroborate your evidence before you present it to the FBI and look like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was pretty, that was pretty embarrassing. I know he, I know he's in California because I have a picture to prove it. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's still good advice though. So, all right, Jan, let's finish up with personal interest. And I really like asking this question because I never am sure what I'm going to get. So your personal interest is long distance motorcycle riding. So long distance, you like to go 500 miles or more. Right. There's an organization, you're going to laugh because it's a silly name. It's called the Iron Butt Association. <laughs> and to, to become an official member of the organization, you have to prove through gas receipts or whatever and, and a witness statement because it's a form that you have to fill out and a witness has to sign it. You get a certificate called a saddle source certificate. And then that's the very basic <laughs> certificate. And a saddle oh, source man. certificate requires riding your motorcycle 1,000 miles within a 24-hour period. Oh, wow. So to give you an idea of how, well, this is how I did it the first time anyway. The first time I did it by myself, I did it once before this with my husband as a passenger. But And that actually does count, by the way, even though he was the one doing the riding. But I I lived near Seattle, Washington. So I drove, mm -hmm. I rode my motorcycle from Seattle, Washington to Drummond, Montana, which is a little over 500 miles away, and turned around and came back. Mm -hmm. That. And I did it in 17 hours. So it's doable. Everybody looks at it and thinks, oh, my God, no way. But I was on the interstate right. the whole way. I left at 3 in the morning on May 31st. So it was the days were long. I don't like riding at night, but 3 in the morning I can handle. I was on familiar roads the whole way because it's an interstate I'm very familiar with. I ride or drive on it a lot, interstate 90. Anyway, you go straight out to 500 miles into Montana and turn around and come back. There are other types of rides, though, that I like to do that are called rallies. And those are bonus point things where you have a minimum distance to travel in, say, 36 hours. So you have to travel 1,500 miles at least within 36 hours, but you also have to stop and get bonuses along the way. So like take a picture of the sign on this barn. Get your, You have to have your gas receipts to prove that you really went where you said you went. Anyway, you, you bring back all this evidence and it's not a race because the, the slowest person who only gets the minimum number of miles and but manages to score a whole bunch of high scoring bonus points because the, the bonus stops have different scores. Like mm -hmm. you can have 10 to 500 points or something. 500 points for a picture of this sign that you have to drive 20 miles down a dirt road to get to. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of thing. It's worth more points if it's harder to get to. So it, yeah, like a, geocaching it, almost in a way. It's it it, is. It's like geocaching on a motorcycle. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, you don't have to be the fastest to win. You just have to be the best planner. <laughs> uh, nice. They they give you a list of bonus points and locations, geolocations at the start of the rally, and and you have to plan your route 
to be the most efficient and to get back with the most points and the, and the most miles. And sometimes that means the least miles necessary mm-hmm. and, and take your chances. And, and it's just a kick. It's so much fun. So those are the kinds of things that I like to do on my motorcycle. It's not all long distance. Obviously, if I commute to work, then that's only 11 miles. <laughs> so, yeah. But well, my preference is, is long distance. Oh, yeah. Well, at least you didn't go back and forth to work for your thousand miles as many no. times. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. Very good, Jan. Our last segment of the show is Words to the World. This is where I give the guests the last word. You can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? Just go out there and do good. Be happy. We, as as law enforcement analysts, we have a grim job. Don't let it get to you. Keep a smile on your face. Cheer people up because we only have so many years on this planet and we should leave a good impression if we can, because once we're dead, unless we're really famous and wrote a lot of books or something, we're dead. So at least try within your small circle of influence to brighten people's lives and and not be grim. Try to try. We have grim jobs. Don't let it get to you and try to to promote goodness in the world through your attitudes. Very good. Why well, leave every guest with you? Given me just enough to talk bad about you later. <laughs> <laughs> but I do appreciate you being on the show, Jan. Thank you so much. And you be safe. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, Jason. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.